Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to paypal.com and donate any amount to History Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. One of the biggest secrets in the United States is the continuity of government. What are the secret plans in the United States in case of a nuclear war or other national emergency? One of the few times this subject was brought up in a congressional hearing was by Representative Jack Brooks from Texas when he asked a question of Oliver North during the Iran-Contra hearings. And this is what happened. Colonel North, in your work at the uh, NSC, were you not assigned at one time to work on plans for the continuity of government in the event of a major disaster? Mr. Chairman, I believe that question touches upon a highly sensitive and classified area. So may I request that you not touch upon that, sir? I was particularly concerned, Mr. Chairman, because I read in Miami papers and several others that there had been a plan uh, developed by that same agency, a contingency plan in the event of emergency that would suspend the American Constitution, and I was deeply concerned about it, and wondered if that was the area in which he had worked. I believe that it was. I most, I to get may I most respectfully request that that matter not be touched upon at this stage. If we wish to get into this, I'm certain arrangements can be made for an executive session. And tragically, the only member who got close was Jack Brooks, and he was stopped by the chairman. And now, speaking at the National Archives about his book, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself and let the rest of us die, is author, Garrett Graff. Good afternoon. I'm David Ferriero, the Archivist of the United States, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to the William G. McGowan Theater here at the National Archives. Whether you're here in the theater or watching us on YouTube, welcome. And I'm pleased that you could join us for today's discussion of Garrett uh, Graff's new book, Raven Rock, the story of the US government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Before we get started, I want to tell you about two other programs coming up here at the McGowan Theater. Next Tuesday, July 25th at noon, Christopher Ullman will be here to talk about his book, Find Your Whistle. Ullman, an international whistling champion, as well as a Wall Street insider, tells the story of how he found, developed, and shares his whistle with politicians, special needs children, Wall Street billionaires, and more than 400 people on their birthdays every year, including me. He'll also be giving a demonstration of his whistling talent. In his real life, um, Chris is the PR person for David Rubenstein. So it's an it will be an interesting program. And on Tuesday, August 8th at noon, journalist Thomas Oliphant will take us behind the scenes of John F. Kennedy's campaign to the White House in the road to Camelot inside JFK's five-year campaign. 
Oliphant follows Kennedy from his failed attempt to win the vice presidential nomination in 1956 to his success at capturing the presidency in 1960. And book signings will follow both programs. To learn more about these and all of our programs and exhibitions, consult our monthly calendar of events in print or online at archives.gov. There are copies in the lobby as well as a sign-up sheet where you can receive it by regular mail or email, and you'll also find brochures about other upcoming events. Using National Archives records, uh, particularly those of the presidential libraries, Garrett Graff's Raven Rock describes the federal government's plans for continuity that have evolved since the end of, World War, of, the, of the World War. In a nuclear age, public officials asked who and what could be saved so that the basic functions of government might go on. Doomsday planning reached beyond federal agencies to government cultural institutions which had to choose which artifacts might be saved from destruction. In a New York Times review, Justin Voigt wrote that Raven Rock is a thorough investigation of Washington's long-lasting efforts to maintain order in the face of catastrophe. In exploring the incredible lengths and depths that successive administrations have gone to in planning for the aftermath of a nuclear assault, Graf deftly weaves a tale of secrecy and paranoia. And Carlos Lozada, writing in Washington Post, says that Graf covers every technicality of the planning for a nuclear aftermath, but the book's power lies in the author's eye for paradox. Decades of planning can be upturned in a moment by a chaotic reality. Here at the National Archives, the safety of the Charters of Freedom, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights was a top concern. In 1952, seven months before the Declaration and Constitution were transferred here, from the Library of Congress, archives officials asked the Army's Office of Chief Engineers for an assessment of our building. In our records is a summary of the meeting titled, The National Archives Building Versus an Atomic Attack. The answer, barring a very near miss or an explosion at ground zero, we should come through in fairly good shape. That is, if we are talking about a nominal type bomb not a super duper, unquote. <laughs> Thankfully, in the 65 years since that discussion, we have not had to face that kind of threat. But continuity of operations is still an important part of government planning, and the National Archives' most direct role is through its operation of the Federal Register. In fact, the Register gets the last word in Graf's Raven Rock with this statement. The rest of the nation, and indeed much of the world, would tune in to the emergencyfederalregister.gov website to figure out what our nation would look like after an attack. Garrett Graff is a distinguished magazine journalist and historian who has spent more than a dozen years covering politics, technology, and national security. He's written for publications from Wired to Bloomberg Businessweek to the New York Times and served as the editor of Washingtonian and Politico magazine, which, which he helped lead to its first national magazine award. Graf is the author of multiple books, including The First Campaign, Globalization, The Web, and The Race for the White House, which examined the role of technology in the 2008 presidential race and the threat matrix, the FBI at war, which traces the history of the FBI's counterterrorism efforts. He's currently working on an oral history of September 11th based on his Politico magazine article, We're the Only Plane in the Sky. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Garrett Graff. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. I'm uh, incredibly excited to be here at the National Archives, and I swear that they did not pay me to start off by saying this, but this is a book project that would have never existed without uh, the incredible uh, national gift that is our presidential libraries, and particularly the archivists who man them and staff them and tell us what is inside of them. Uh, if you have never visited presidential libraries, uh, I encourage you to do so. It's, uh, uh, I, every time I'm at one of them, I like to imagine that that's where all of my tax dollars go to support. 
Um, so this is uh, this book is the uh, effectively the history of the real life designated survivor programs. The Kiefer Sutherland uh, ABC drama that is on right now, and it's a subject that I came to actually in uh, in 2011. I, as David had said, I have covered national security and politics in Washington for. Uh, most of my journalism career, and had bumped up against these programs multiple times. I talked to people who had been evacuated on September 11th to some of these uh, mountain bunkers around Washington. I talked to people who had been part of these plans during the Obama and Bush years. Uh, and I had even gotten to fly at one point with the first helicopter squadron at Andrews Air Force Base in uh, uh, just south of Washington here that practices above uh, Washington on a daily basis to evacuate officials in the event of some sort of catastrophic event here in Washington. So when you're out and about uh, in the coming days in Washington, and if you look up and you see a blue and gold helicopter flying, uh, that is the first helicopter squadron uh, practicing for uh, doomsday of some sort. And, but. What really got me interested in this was uh, it, I had, when I was working at Washingtonian, one of my colleagues brought in to work in the morning a government ID badge that he had found on the floor of a metro parking garage. Uh, and it was clearly a US intelligence officer's badge. Um, and he handed it to me and was like, I'll bet you can, like, this guy is probably having a bad day without this. Like, figure out how to get it back to him, uh, and I'll, I'll bet you can track him down. And so I start uh, sort of looking at it, and I see that there's this set of driving directions uh, on the back of it. Uh, and I can tell it leads out somewhere into West Virginia. And uh, so I get on Google Maps, Google Satellite, and I start following this, uh, this driving uh, path and get out to uh, this place in West Virginia where there's a road that goes up a mountain. And then on Google Satellite, you could see that there was a chain link fence, a guard shack. The road went about 50 more yards and then disappeared into the side of the mountain. And I was like, wow, like this is a facility I've never heard of. It's not marked on any of the maps that I could find. But this is obviously part of these plans as they have been built up since 9-11. And so that led me uh, to get interested in going back and trying to figure out what these plans were. And it, it, it ended up being, I think, I'm biased, a fascinating uh, excavation of the way that the Cold War unfolded um, in, a, in a couple of big ways. Uh, much of my writing over the years has been about the way that technology transforms institutions. And this became a story of really how one very specific technology transformed one very specific institution. This is the story of how nuclear weapons changed the US presidency. And what, what it did as I began to understand this is the arrival of nuclear weapons uh, began to fundamentally reshape Washington in two big ways, because it compressed time and space in a way that we had never had to deal with before. That you know, the, the US presidency up until the end of the cold or uh, the end of World War II was not a particularly fast institution. Um, you know, uh, in as late as 1935, when FDR was on his way back from the dedication of the Hoover Dam, his motorcade got lost in the canyons outside Las Vegas, and the president just disappeared for the afternoon. And no one knew when he was going to pop up, where he might next appear, or how long he was going to be out of touch. And as late as January 1945, when Harry Truman took over as vice president, the vice president didn't actually have any Secret Service protection. 
Um, the vice president just sort of wandered around Washington unmolested during the day. And, you know, as long as, like, you could get a hold of him in the course of an afternoon or by the next morning, like, you could, uh, you could actually, uh, you know, that was all you needed for the vice president. Well, nuclear weapons began to compress the decision-making time such that the president needed to be in constant communication, that the vice president needed to be locatable, and sort of on down through the US government, um, which I'll come back to in a second. And then the second is we began to struggle for the first time with the question of what happens if an entire city is wiped out in an instant. Um, obviously, uh, this was a new threat uh, of, the, uh, of the nuclear age, of the atomic age. Um, and as he was saying during the introduction, in thinking about and talking about those early years, sort of part of what's strange to consider now when we look back on this is that for you know, that first decade or so of the atomic age, there was actually very much the idea that a nuclear war could be a survivable phenomenon, that it would, it would be awful for sure, but you were talking about bombers uh, moving slowly through uh, from, from Soviet airspace, so you would have 8, 10, 12 hours worth of warning plenty of time to evacuate senior officials, even to evacuate large chunks of cities. And that, you know, particularly in those early years, you weren't talking about, uh, as he said, uh, super duper bombs. Uh, you weren't talking about all that many bombs. So there was the idea that you might have, yeah, you know, the loss of a couple dozen cities. You might have, uh, you know, Washington get hit by one atomic bomb, uh, which at that point wouldn't, uh, you know, necessarily even have wiped out the entire city. And so you had sort of this weird moment where the government was like, oh, well, like, we can actually plan and organize around how to respond to a nuclear attack. And then, you have the shift from bombers to missiles. The, you go from 8, 10, 12 hours worth of warning to just 15 to 30 minutes. Washington, if there was a uh, submarine off the East Coast, you might be talking about as few as 8 to 11 minutes worth of warning. Um, and then actually even one of the weirder uh, things I've, I discovered in this was that the, um, the Soviet embassy on 16th Street at that point, uh, during the Eisenhower and Kennedy years, the uh, US actually believed that the Soviets had an atomic bomb in the attic on the third floor there. And so you might not get any warning at all. Um, now, of course, uh, the Soviet embassy, the Russian embassy, is radioactive for a slightly different reason in, in Washington. Um, but at, at that point, uh, you, you have not just the technology and this, the warning speed change, but you also have the shift from nuclear bombs to thermonuclear bombs, from atomic bombs to hydrogen bombs. And then just the sheer scale of these arsenals also begins to expand dramatically. And so nuclear war quickly became something that was much less manageable and much less uh, something that you could actually plan for. But for the 70 years uh, that we have had since the end of the Cold War, these plans, these continuity of government plans, were some of the most highly classified, most secret plans of the US government. And even people working in adjacent offices wouldn't necessarily know who was part of the plans and who wasn't. Uh, when Aaron Sorkin, the director, uh, uh, was doing the research for what ultimately became the West Wing and the American president, he was meeting with George Stephanopoulos. This was the 1990s. Stephanopoulos was the White House communications director. And Stephanopoulos showed him uh, uh, what Aaron Sorkin thought was a bus pass in his wallet, but was actually his evacuation pass, uh, sort of his get out of nuclear war free card. 
And uh, Sorkin incorporates that into a West Wing episode, which some of you might remember, where Josh Lyman, the deputy chief of staff, gets one of these passes from the National Security Council and sort of walks around for the day with this tremendous amount of guilt. Well, Dee Dee Myers, who had been Stephanopoulos's White House press secretary, pulls Aaron Sorkin aside. She was on the set that day at the beginning of the episode and says, you know, Aaron, I think that this is all kind of a hokey premise because these cards don't actually exist. And Aaron Sorkin is sitting there and he's like, wait, you never realized that you weren't going to be protected in the event of a nuclear war and that the person in, literally in the office next to you was going to be? Um, and, and this ends up being uh, the, the story of this, uh, these plans, uh, I think ends up being this fascinating story of an unfolding technology revolution. And in many ways, the, these plans, which were, uh, with, with the exception of 9-11, which I'll talk about in a second, were never really used have ended up profoundly shaping and influencing our modern world. And that in many ways, our modern world is the result of the doomsday planning that the US government did and never used during the Cold War. It was in, uh, the Pentagon's desire for a decentralized communications network that could survive nuclear war that first led to the investments that eventually became the internet. It was uh, the first chat program uh, ever designed, uh, sort of the forerunner of Skype and Facebook Messenger and AOL Instant Messenger was a program called Emissari that was originally used for the government bunkers to communicate amongst themselves for, uh, to discuss stockpile levels in the event of uh, an unfolding catastrophe. And even the airplane reservation system that we use anytime you're booking a ticket on Kayak or Orbitz or Expedia, wherever you prefer to book airplane tickets, is a descendant of Sabre, which, is, which was the original program that the US designed to track incoming Soviet bombers during the Cold War to launch these evacuation protocols. And that this was also, uh, there are some very physical legacies to this, that the interstate highway system uh, that we use uh, you know, on a daily basis around the country is, was originally conceived in part by Dwight Eisenhower as a way to speed the evacuation of urban cities. Uh, and to speed the movement of relief supplies and war material around the country. That he was very obsessed uh, with logistics and how we would actually be able to move things around in the country in the event of a, uh, an attack on the United States. And that was part of the original conception for what was, when it was originally founded, known as the Interstate uh, and Defense Highway System uh, in the United States. This is also where you begin to see, for the first time, the US government keeping mass secrets, that, which it has obviously a very important legacy in the modern national security state, where you have the secrets of the atomic age were the first time that the US government had ever had to need to keep large numbers of secrets secret for an indefinite period of time. And so before then, you had had you know, a secret battle plan uh, or a secret uh, diplomatic mission, but there were not the Ex there were not the technical secrets, there were not the uh, infrastructure secrets that we now consider so much of the core of the modern national security state. This is a world that through the much of the Cold War, the American public had some interaction with. Uh, and, and that's part of the subtitle of the book, uh, the US government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Uh, 
for those of you of a certain age, you'll remember the 1950s and 1960s efforts at civil defense, the, uh, the Bert the Turtle duck and cover drills of elementary school, where if you just were able to get under your desk in time, you would survive nuclear war. And the fallout shelter crazes of the 1950s and 1960s and the efforts to encourage people to build fallout shelters and bomb shelters in their own backyards. And then the Kennedy era push to institutionalize those and federalize those uh, with the, uh, the brown and orange fallout shelter logos that you can sort of still see rusting and graying on elementary schools and post offices around the country. That this, there was a real effort to protect the civilian population. There were these big national exercises known as Operation Alert, where the entire, entire cities would come to a stop. People would practice evacuations. You would have, uh, you know, in Washington, thousands of government personnel evacuate to these mountain bunkers uh, in a very overt manner, that this was uh, you know, something that the US government practiced very openly for a number of years. But then as the nuclear weapons got stronger, they got faster, the government's ambitions gradually shrank to what they effectively are today, which continues to be uh, evacuate a small number of very high-ranking officials, uh, one of whom is uh, sitting in the front row of this room, uh, out to mountain bunkers of one sort or another around Washington and leaving the rest of us to fend uh, for ourselves. But the constellation uh, of these facilities and these, the vehicles involved in this was larger and more complex than anything I had imagined when I began this research, that you have not just these large bunkers. The name of the book, Raven Rock, is a reference to the bunker that would have served as, and would still serve as the backup Pentagon uh, in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, that is literally a hollowed out mountain with a freestanding city built inside capable of supporting thousands of people uh, from the Pentagon. There's a second bunker uh, in Berryville, Virginia, about 80 minutes west of Washington, called uh, Mount Weather, that's still uh, today another hollowed out mountain uh, with a freestanding city inside. And these are, when I say freestanding city, I mean they are, it is, you know, a city of freestanding three story buildings, um, you know. You're with their own police departments, their own fire departments, medical facilities, uh, cafeterias, uh, you know, small lakes uh, inside the mountain that would have served for drinking water and, uh, you know, huge power plants. I mean, sort of everything that you would need to live inside the mountain for a month at a time. Uh, Colorado uh, has Cheyenne Mountain, uh, the, NORAD, the NORAD facility. Um, which some of you may be familiar with from the 1980s movie War Games with Matthew Broderick. Uh, another you know, mountain-sized bunker uh, that uh, is still up and running today. Uh, I was just in it a, a couple of months ago, and they are rebuilding it right now, sort of reorienting it uh, to protect against cyber attacks and the threat of rogue states like North Korea. And that these three large facilities are the best known, but represented actually a very small portion of what were more than a hundred of these facilities scattered around Washington and the United States, including regional bunkers in places like Maynard, Massachusetts and Denton, Texas, that FEMA, which was the agency that uh, would have run these plans and still would run these plans today, uh, the thinking was that sort of the federal government would d dissolve into these eight regional bunkers around the country for a period of several months before the federal government was able to reconstitute itself. But then each department and agency had its own bunker uh, or its own relocation facility. The State Department would have gone to a cattle research center 
in Front Royal, Virginia, and had set aside this incredibly bucolic farm uh, where their personnel would have uh, lived out nuclear war. The Federal Reserve had a bunker in Mount Pony, Virginia, uh, down by Richmond here, that had both room for the Fed chair and the Board of Governors, but then also had $4 billion in cash locked away in vaults down there that would have served uh, to bridge, in their mind, bridge the gap uh, for the nation's currency needs during the 18 months that they estimated it would take the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to get back to printing currency. Um, then you had uh, other facilities scattered around the rest of the country, but then also this very strange constellation of vehicles. Uh, there was the uh, there was an airborne command post known as Looking Glass uh, that would have uh, served as really the nation's absolute last line of defense that flew 24 hours a day from 1962 until the early 1990s. There was one of these planes up in the air, uh, somewhere over the plains, uh, every day of the year. And if everything on the continental United States had been de destroyed, there would still be a one-star general aboard the looking glass plane who could have launched all of the remaining nuclear missiles and communicated with our submarines around the world to launch their own arsenal. There was a fleet uh, of special Navy ships, the USS Northampton and the USS Wright, that were uh, floating command posts, floating White Houses. One of them kept off uh, the Atlantic coast uh, for much of the 1960s and early 1970s, where the president could have been evacuated in the event of an attack on Washington. Uh, fun piece of Washington trivia, uh, Bob Woodward, the investigative reporter, actually did his naval service as one of the nuclear officers aboard the presidential command ships. So if President Johnson had ever been evacuated from Washington, it would have been Bob Woodward meeting him on board the plane to, or on board the ship to tell him how to run nuclear war. These were uh, the, the, the Johnson and Nixon era plans, but then uh, as satellite technology improved and it became harder to hide a Navy ship in the Atlantic, the US government shifted to what continues to exist today, the presidential doomsday planes, these planes uh, known by the code word Nightwatch, this fleet of 747s that would have served and still serve today as the president's airborne command posts. And the, we are, as we are sitting here in Washington today, one of these planes is on the runway at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. Its engines are on. It is fully staffed with every type of personnel that you would need to run nuclear war from the sky. And it could launch in less than 15 minutes to rendezvous with wherever the president ends up being. There was a whole fleet of Gulfstream jets that shadowed the plane that we know as Air Force One around the country wherever the president was, landing always one airport away from where Air Force One was landing that was specially designed to land at the secret airstrip at Mount Weather in Berryville, Virginia, so that if something happened while the president was anywhere outside of Washington, he would be raced not back to Air Force One, but to this Gulf Stream, and then ushered straight back to Mount Weather. And that these were uh, plans that, as I said, continue to this day. Uh, Raven Rock today is fully staffed. Mount Weather is fully staffed. NORAD is fully staffed in the event that something happened in, uh, in Washington without any notice. And that this is a plan that uh, part of what I found so fascinating about it was as you begin to think through these questions of what do you need to preserve America, that very quickly becomes a very existential question 
about what is America. And so are you trying to preserve the presidency? Are you trying to preserve the three branches of government? Or are you even planning to preserve, particularly relevant uh, today, the historical totems that have bound us together uh, generation by generation in America? And so during the Cold War, as part of these plans, the government sat down here at the National Archives and decided that the, if they uh, that they would save the Declaration of Independence before they saved the Constitution. That at the Library of Congress, they would save Lincoln's Gettysburg Address before they saved George Washington's military commission. And that even in Philadelphia, through the Cold War, there was a specially trained team of park rangers whose job it was to evacuate the Liberty Bell out into the mountains in the event of a Soviet threat. I just sort of have this like mental picture of these park rangers like driving off in a pickup truck with like the Liberty Bell swinging freely off into the mountains. No, 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 I swear that crack was there before we started moving it. And that these plans uh, imagined this whole post-apocalyptic government where every existing department and agency would have some post doomsday version of itself. The post office was the agency through the Cold War that was in charge of registering the dead and figuring out who was still alive. And so at, you would show up in the refugee camps and you would be handed this postcard. This is Form 810. And you would list here the members of your family that had survived nuclear war with you. And then on the back, you would list some other member of your family who you were interested in trying to mail this postcard to and being reunited with. Um, there was no postage necessary. The postage was not necessary uh, after the nuclear holocaust. And then the post office would sort of collect all of these cards and sort through them. The, uh, the refugee camps themselves would be run by the Park Service, because the thinking was that national parkland would be largely untouched by nuclear war. And so you would flee from Washington out into the Blue Ridge Mountains, or you would flee in California out into Yosemite, and your friendly park ranger would be standing there to usher you into the refugee camps. The US Department of Agriculture was in charge of feeding everyone in the event of nuclear war. And so they convened a, uh, these like very detailed studies of how many, uh, how many man days, that was the measurement that they used, how many man days of edible fish and wildlife would survive nuclear war, and how many man days of domestic pets would survive nuclear war. So that once you emerged from the fallout shelters at the end of the two weeks that was recommended that you stay in the fallout shelter, they would know how much food and be able to ration it uh, appropriately. Uh, in Kansas, for instance, they knew that on an average basis there was a 28-day supply of coffee that would be available in the event of nuclear war afterwards. Uh, so that for at least the first month after nuclear war, you could still have coffee. In the sh fallout shelters, meanwhile, you would be fed one of uh, ultimately a 165,000 tons of survival biscuits that were manufactured in the 50s and 60s by companies like Kroger and Nabisco that had been uh, sealed in these seven-pound tins and pre-located in these fallout shelters. Each person in the shelter would receive six crackers a day, uh, each cracker being worth 125 calories. And the very helpful documentation that came with the crackers suggested that since there wasn't that much else to do in the fallout shelter, that each cracker should be treated as its own meal to encourage uh, as much activity as you could have over the course of the day. The crackers, uh, of course, uh, were not uh, the tastiest that uh, had ever been designed. 
uh, and the government ultimately uh, scrapped all of them when they began to send uh, some of the surplus crackers off to natural disaster survivors in Bangladesh and Africa, only to discover that those recipients uh, suffered severe gastric problems uh, after living on the crackers for several, uh, several days. Then uh, you would have uh, even the IRS uh, had very carefully considered how it would levy taxes on nuclear damaged property. Uh, because, uh, of course, not even the nuclear war would stop the IRS from looking to collect taxes. And that these plans sort of are uh, hilarious in some ways to talk about in the abstract, but were very deadly serious activities and exercises during the time of uh, the Cold War. Um, and and it, to me, it's just this very fascinating and strange history of like a world that has never happened and we hope never actually does happen, but continues to exist just out of sight, uh, even as we are sitting here in Washington today. Um, I think I might stop there and take questions because there are a lot of different directions uh, that we could go. There are mics on either end, so if you have a uh, question, please uh, stand up and come to the mic so that the people uh, watching the video can hear. Thank you very much. A uh, couple questions. The first is when someone joins the government and then gets a call or says, come over here, welcome aboard to the Doomsday Club. How, how does that work and evolve from the perspective of who's managing the overall process of what that means to that person. And it could be anything, right? You talked about everything from people taking bells away to, to people that are still there working on, on food processing, anything that you can comment in, in that regard. And what, I guess, happens from the perspective of if doomsday occurred, those people's jobs today are slightly different at that time and what's the reality of, of that process and who's managing that whole system that exists uh, plus, uh, you know, doomsday? Yeah. Um, so it, 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 in my mind, uh, what makes these plans so interesting is the intersection of the very carefully crafted black and white paper plans and the human psychology that would inevitably intrude into any sort of catastrophic event. So when you talk about like what happens when people are brought into these plans, one of the first questions that always comes up is like, what happens to my family? And uh, believe it or not, this is a problem that was uh, literally exposed during the first uh, exercise, Operation Alert 1954, when Eisenhower's cabinet uh, Eisenhower and his cabinet evacuated to the undisclosed location that we now know as Mount Weather uh, and took with them all of their secretaries uh, and none of the wives. <laughs> and there was a very chilly game of rummy that afternoon that the wives of the cabinet played back here in Washington as they contemplated that their husbands did not intend for them to survive <laughs> nuclear war. And that this is uh, sort of a continuous problem through the Cold War. Earl Warren, when he was Chief Justice, he uh, sort of what happened, and this is pretty typical of how these plans unfold, you know, this guy from the forerunner of FEMA at that point shows up at his office and has a very somber meeting with him and reads him the plan and slides across the desk to him that emergency evacuation pass. And, it, uh, and he says, where's the pass for Mrs. Warren? And the man from uh, OEP, the Office of Emergency Preparedness, says, 
well, you know, sir, you are one of the most important people in the U.S. government, so, you know, the, the pass is just for you. And he says, well, good news. I've just freed up a spot for you for some other very important person and hands the pass back uh, and says, you know, if there's no room for Mrs. Warren, there's no point in me attending. And that that, uh, that was true sort of through the Cold War. Um, and in fact, um, on, uh, I, as part of this, I was talking to someone uh, that I know in Washington who was part of these plans during the Obama administration, and he had a designated evacuation helicopter that would have found him wherever he was in Washington and swept him off to one of these bunkers. And he said to me, you know, I've got two young daughters, and if anyone thinks that that helicopter, uh, if that lands on a Saturday morning at my daughter's soccer game, that I'm going to wave goodbye to them forever and hop on the plane, or hop on the helicopter, like, they're crazy. Um, and I think that that's a very real part of the challenge of these plans is, you know, would any of them have actually worked? Um, and then to briefly answer your, your second question about you know, the modern analog of this, uh, all of these have been updated for sort of modern threats. So the post office is, you know, they, they, they don't have uh, Form 810 uh, anymore, <laughs> but they are the agency designated with distributing medical countermeasures in the event of a chemical, biological, or public health pandemic uh, in the United States. Um, and there's a very careful, detailed plan of how the post office would distribute you know, vaccines or antidotes nationwide, with the thinking, again, that the post office is the one agency of the US government that can visit every house in the United States in a single day. Um, but this is sort of one of those things that you should know about and think about when you're next calculating the tip for your postman, um, because you want to definitely make sure that you're one of the first houses on the street to get the Ebola vaccine. Yeah. So one thing you didn't mention was what were the plans for continuity of Congress um, yes. and the elected branch? And then second, sort of a little bit of follow to that one. So what are the plans if there's like a smaller, like someone somehow does crash a plane into the White House now? or? you know, terrorists get a hold of a small, you know, tactical nuclear bomb yep. and blow it up. So it's not the whole country is blown up, but, you know, smaller emergency that affects the operations of the federal government. Yeah. Um, uh, so part of uh, this story is the extent to which uh, the United States under almost any of these scenarios would be transformed into a presidential dictatorship. Um, that, you know, we know the presidential football, the, you know, the president's nuclear briefcase that follows him wherever he goes. Well, during the Cold War, there was also the attorney general's emergency football that followed the attorney general around that contained all of these pre-written executive orders, uh, suspending civil liberties, suspending habeas corpus, declaring martial law. Um, the, the plans at one point included this list of, uh, you know, thousands of suspected subversives that the FBI would arrest uh, following the signing of this draft master arrest warrant. Um, you know, w without cause, just mm -hmm. you were on J. Edgar Hoover's list and there were 10,000 people that the FBI would sweep up in the opening hours of uh, a threat like this. And that, that, uh, that sort of carried through a lot of these plans in that there wasn't really much of a role for Congress. Uh, there wasn't much of a role for the Supreme Court. Um, Congress had its bunker at the Greenbrier, uh, which probably many of you know, uh, out in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, uh, which is one of the rare 
of these facilities, it's maintained and sort of still exists in the form that yeah. it existed during the Cold War. So you can go out and tour it, and if you ever have the chance, it's a really fascinating tour. Uh, to like see the room where the House of Representatives would have been convened or the, the Senate would have been convened. Uh, but that was all predicated on that 8, 10, 12 hours worth of warning that Congress would be brought down from Capitol Hill to a special train that would have gone from Union Station out to West Virginia. Um, and then uh, I, I uncovered as, as part of the research that uh, members of Congress weren't actually told where the relocation bunker was um, to, the, to the question about, you know, how these plans would, were actually communicated. And because they, you know, there's so many people coming in and out of Congress all the time, they didn't want to tell each member and then have sort of this whole pool of ex-members who knew, <laughs> you know, where the evacuation plans would go. Um, and so if nuclear war came when Congress was in recess or on a weekend or something, uh, the plan was literally members of Congress were supposed to find their local FBI field office and there were sealed letters uh, in each FBI field office for each nearby member of Congress telling them where to report for their, uh, you know, to, for their evacuation facility. Now, the... Uh, the modern analog of this plan becomes very interesting in the congressional sense because uh, the modern sets of these plans and the, particularly the way that the three branches interact is known by the term enduring constitutional government, uh, ECG, and it's the most highly classified set of these plans. We don't really have any idea what those plans actually mean today. What we do, what we can surmise out of them, um, and part of the uh, fun and challenge of speaking to Washington audiences is like there might be someone in this room who like wrote the ECG plan <laughs> who, who knows that I'm just entirely wrong about this. So feel free to speak up if that's the case. Um, but uh, what we think the ECG plan entails is basically some set of special powers that preserves not the letter of the Constitution, but the spirit of the Constitution, and empowers some small rump Congress to act in the stead of the full Congress. And part of why we think that is the, so I mentioned at the beginning, designated survivor, the, uh, the presidential survivor. Since 2001, since 9-11, there has been a designated congressional survivor, uh, you know, a member of Congress who is hidden away during high profile events. That makes no sense in the context of ordinary Congress. Uh, you know, you can't get anything done with one member of Congress under ordinary circumstances. Whether you can get anything done with 535 members of Congress is a separate question. Um, but uh, the only reason it would make sense to save one member of Congress is if that person has some sort of special emergency powers to act until Congress itself is reconstituted. Um, the uh, terrible, tragic shooting here at the softball game a, a couple weeks ago uh, sort of brought these issues back up um, in partly because Congress still has no way to reconstitute itself if large numbers of members are incapacitated, not killed. Um, so if there's a chemical or biological attack uh, that injures uh, or puts a large number of members of Congress in a coma, uh, Congress would just be paralyzed, uh, and there's no procedure that we have for, for Congress to continue operating like that. Right. And then what about if there's like a more targeted, oh, yes, like sorry. the White House is um, blown up? So that's actually, so that's yeah. where a lot of these plans are now focused, is uh, less around evacuation and more around devolution. Um, and that's both because of the 9-11 experience 
but also um, it, you might also remember there was a sarin gas attack by a cult in Tokyo on the subway there. And those two events uh, in the late 90s and 2001 uh, focused the government on basically keeping these facilities running 24 hours a day because in the modern context, actually the most likely threat is that something happens in a very localized way right. in Washington, uh, but then leaves you know the other 329 million Americans, uh, you know, completely fine but leaderless. Right. So that that's why the, these mountain bunkers are still manned okay. today, 24 hours a day. Okay. Thank you. If I could, I'd like to ask, <clears throat> I could, if I'd like, I'd like to ask two questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, as you described uh, in, in the moment of national emergency, uh, only a very small number of uh, documents or artifacts could be preserved. The, uh, uh, the declaration of it, not the Constitution, uh, et cetera. But it, uh, I would imagine that a lot more could be preserved uh, digitally. Yes. And so I wondered if there are provisions for, uh, for that uh, digital preservation. Yeah, so, uh, so a lot of these plans are also artifacts of their time, right? So. Like there, there was an entire one of the things that the government was most concerned about in the you know forties, fifties, and early sixties were maps. Like we built all of these like uh, redundant map storage facilities around the country uh, because of the fear of you know maps at that point only existed in paper. And so you only would have, uh, you know, if something happened to the, the Pentagon, like you would lose all of the maps of Eastern Europe. Uh, and so, you know, that's no longer that much of a concern. And much of this is now focused on, you know, digital backups and, uh, uh, you know, a more distributed document preservation systems than existed back then. So much of what's in this building is, uh, uh, is, is, is preserved in, 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 uh, in ones and zeros? Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and the second question is, you mentioned the Greenbrier. Um, as you described, I gather it's no longer a, uh, an active facility. It's now uh, something that, uh, that people can tour. Uh, wasn't there a, uh, a story of how it, how how it was discovered and uh, and be uh, uh, and could then no longer be used as as uh, uh, as a facility. A, re a reporter found out about it. And yeah, so it was a Washington Post reporter by the name of Ted Gupp who uh, announced the facility to the world 25 years ago, actually this May, um, just two months ago, and it. In, in reality, the facility had largely served its purpose by that point anyway. I mean, the Cold War was, was winding down. Um, the extent to which the, the Russians, the Soviets, knew of these facilities has always been a semi-open question. Um, there was a point during the, uh, I think it was the Nixon administration, uh, it might have been Johnson, where the Soviets uh, announced that they wanted to buy a weekend vacation house for their diplomats that just so happened to be located atop Mount Weather. Um, and the, uh, they swore it was just a total coincidence. Um, and the State Department actually ended up nixing it. Um, but their... The expectation was that the Russians knew of many of these facilities anyway. And, uh, uh, and, and we actually now understand that actually Robert Hansen, uh, when he was spying for Russia and the Soviet Union, actually delivered a set of continuity of government plans to, uh, to the Russians yeah. um, at, at one point. Uh, uh, but there, there's sort of an interesting question about the Greenbrier specifically, because the thinking is, and we don't know who Ted Gupp's original source was, but that that was part of a bureaucratic tussle at the time about whether these facilities should be wound down anyway. Um, 
and, and, and indeed it very quickly was. Um, and I tell the story in the book of how, you know, the morning after these, uh, after the Washington Post story ran, the, uh, uh, so the, the bunker was run by a front company that purported to be the audio video techs for the Greenbrier, this company called Forsyth Associates. Um, and so the Forsyth Associates staff you know, the morning after the Washington Post story, uh, you know, are out on the loading dock of the bunker, you know, like drilling through, uh, you know, computers. And the first thing that actually came was a truck to take away the small arms locker that had been at the Greenbrier through the Cold War. Um, and one of the Greenbrier staff is standing there on the loading dock and is like, what are you guys doing? Um, and the uh, guy, who headed Forsyth Associates, um, was sort of the head FEMA worker on site, says, uh, do you want to try to explain to members of Congress who we would have been using these weapons against <laughs> in the event of, uh, uh, you know, an evacuation of this bunker? Um, and so they, you know, they really hustled to close that thing down pretty quickly. Thank you. Yeah. All right, last question down here. Or maybe I'll take two quickly. Hi. Um, what year did um, Clarence Thomas give the oath of office to Barack Obama? I don't think he did. Wasn't it John Roberts? Thank you. Thank you. My question, what happened to the badge that you found in its oh. driving directions <laughs> to West Virginia? Um, it was, uh, I, I, we actually did get it back. To, to them, um, sort of what's, uh, it, it, it was a, a funny, typical story, because um, what happens when you call secret facilities in Washington is they don't actually answer with what the, they just tell you the extension number that you've reached. So, you know, they'll say like, you know, 3793. So we called the watch number on the, on the badge and, we're like, hi, we've got this badge. And he's like, how did you get this number? <laughs> so, all right, and I'll take this one last question here. Um, remembering 9-11, when yes. we sort of didn't know where Dick Cheney was for a while, and it turned out, does that, was that following some sort of plan? And why was, why was Cheney more seemingly protected than Bush? Uh, well, so Bush was in Florida, um, uh, aboard, uh, he was at that elementary school, and was put aboard Air Force One and uh, sort of hid out on Air Force One for the day. And it, it, it's this great moment that illustrates the central paradox of a lot of these plans, uh, which is the challenge of these plans is you can either be secure or you can be in control. And that most of these plans, you can't do both. And so Bush was secure, hidden aboard that plane, uh, doing, by the way, and I, I, um, I, I wrote a whole piece about being aboard Air Force One that day, um, and am absolutely convinced that President Bush made the right decision as the Commander-in-Chief of the United States in that moment. But he received, as we all remember, you know, tremendous criticism for not doing the Rudy Giuliani thing and like marching straight down to ground zero. Um, and we sort of saw that ripple down through government where Donald Rumsfeld, you know, his first reaction upon being at the Pentagon when it was struck on 9-11 was he actually went to the crash site and literally helped carry wounded people on stretchers out of the attack, um, which was you know, a tremendously courageous thing that bonded him with the military in a very profound way at that moment, but was absolutely the wrong thing for him to do as the Secretary of Defense and a key member of the National Command Authority. Um, because during the 90 minutes that were the central moment of that attack, 
uh, he was still in danger at the Pentagon. Um, you know, the right thing for him to do, according to every protocol for 70 years, some of which, by the way, Donald Rumsfeld wrote when he was defense secretary the first time around uh, in the 1970s, was uh, to get on a helicopter and get out of the Pentagon. And in fact, that's what Paul Wolfowitz ended up doing uh, that day. And actually, he went to Raven Rock uh, as the deputy defense secretary. He was evacuated to Raven Rock. Um, that day, and Dick Cheney um, was in the White House bunker under the North Lawn of the White House, um, and then, uh, as we remember him, sort of disappearing into those undisclosed locations for the remainder of that fall. Um, you know, a lot of that was like the Camp David, Raven Rock area, um, uh, among other facilities that he he went to. So, all right, thank you very much. There's. Uh, Just a few moments. Okay.